How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship, in right relationship with uh, God, so that God the Holy Spirit can fill you with the teaching of his word and uh, apply it to your life as we study this evening, help you to understand what we study. And then uh, after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Fathers, we come together this evening to study your word. We're reminded that uh, this is not uh, is not something to be taken casually, that we have had your word uh, and we have it for our own personal possession and we, can, we have good translations and we can understand it. We have uh, a lot of good Bible teaching in this country. And Father, this is so rare. We have an abundance. We are so prosperous and yet... Uh, as a nation, we are failing the doctrinal prosperity test, and we, uh, the more we have, the more we seem to ignore it as a culture, and even in the church, there are too many believers who take for granted the availability of the Word and get too distracted with the details of life. And Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us this evening as we study your Word, that we might be grateful for all that you have given us, and that we might be strengthened and encouraged as we understand uh, the dimensions of your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Acts chapter 8, and we're not going to move forward a whole lot in our study of Acts 8 this evening because in these few verses that I began to touch on last time, we get into and touch on several uh, key doctrines and ideas, and so I'm going to try to hit these tonight. Uh, for, for many of you, uh, these are somewhat old hat, but for some, they're relatively new. So rather than going uh, into uh, tremendous detail on all of them, I'm just going to sort of give an, uh, give an overview because I've given a lot more detail in other, in other studies. We are looking at the ministry of Philip in uh, Samaria. I covered this somewhat last time and how truly revolutionary this was for the Jewish culture, that they took the gospel to the Samaritans and that there was such a response among the Samaritans. It fits within the context of, of uh, the argument and the flow of, of Luke. Luke is writing to show the outworking of Jesus' uh, commandment to the disciples in Acts 1.8, that they were to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came. And when he, once he came, they were to be witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria and then the uh, ends of the earth. And so the first seven chapters of Acts focuses on this, uh, what happened in Jerusalem. And then in this center part, uh, chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, 
focuses on the expansion of the church into Judea and Samaria, and then starting with chapter 13 and the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey, then we see the explosion of the gospel out into the into the world. Now, some people have asked me to um, take some time to talk about what happened to the other disciples because we don't hear much more about them. In fact, in this chapter, this is going to be the last time we see the Apostle John in the book of Acts. We'll see Peter some more, but after after chapter 12, we don't see Peter anymore. The focus from 13 on is all on the Apostle Paul. And so when we get to the end of uh, chapter 12 or somewhere in there, I'm going to start giving you some little vignettes on uh, the uh, apostles, the other uh, apostles, and what happened to them, what happened uh, as they lived out their lives. Many of them are martyred. We know of James, the brother of John, is going to be martyred within the framework of the book of Acts, and that will be uh, be described when we get to about chapter 11, I believe. So we'll go into that. But uh, as we go forward, we'll see how 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 this expands. Another question that comes up, and I think somebody asked me this or they came close to asking it, is why don't we hear much about the gospel going east to Parthia? Uh, we believe it did because of uh, uh, Peter's mention in 1 Peter that he's writing from Babylon, which was in the Parthian Empire at that time. We know it went into North Africa because of events that happened later in this chapter when Philip uh, witnesses to the Ethiopian eunuch, and he is high in the government. He's probably uh, one of the uh, uh, top advisors, top officials in the uh, Ethiopian government, and he is going to take the gospel with him down to Ethiopia. And so we have the spread of the gospel down into uh, into Africa. But there's no follow-up on that in the gospel. That just we surmise that because that would be logical, based on um, based on our understanding of the way people are. Uh, why is it that in Acts the focus is all on on um, uh, the expansion into into Europe? I wonder if anybody has any idea. It all goes back to Genesis chapter nine. It goes back to uh, Noah's pronouncement of a blessing and a curse. He blesses Shem as the foundation for spiritual blessing for the world. He blesses Japheth, the, how, uh, the descendants of Japheth, because it will be uh, in the tents of Japheth that Shem uh, is blessed. There is nothing said about Ham, the third son of Noah, uh, there's no blessing, no cursing mentioned about Ham. He's just bypassed, and then there's a cursing on Canaan. And that uh, gives us an overview of history. God's blueprint for history is that it's going to be primarily through the uh, Japhetic people that there's going to be the economic and sociological expansion. And that doesn't mean that there aren't contributions from uh, the Hamitic descendants, but God's emphasis is going to be on on Japheth and the relationship of the descendants of Japheth and the descendants of Shem, specifically through Abraham and, uh, and, and the Israelites. So this is why we have this follow-up when we get into the New Testament, why the focus is, goes in, into Europe, because that is the direction of God's plan uh, for human history. This is one reason, because every now and then I get questions on this, 
as well. Uh, <clears throat> Joel Rosenberg, who's a popular writer, author of some um, uh, fiction dealing with end times events, uh, is completely sold on this idea of an an of a uh, Arab Antichrist. Some others are as well, but this doesn't fit this pattern, this flow of of this emphasis on the Japhetic descendants. And remember in, in Daniel chapter 9, when uh, Daniel is given the vision of the 70 weeks, and at the end of the 69th week, which when you factor in the days, it's 173,880 days after uh, the decree to for Nehemiah to go back and finish rebuilding the uh, f- rebuilding the fortifications and the walls around Jerusalem, that that comes to uh, its fulfillment just at the time that the Lord Jesus Christ comes into Jerusalem and is welcomed uh, on the uh, what we call Palm Sunday, the day that the, the Sunday prior to his uh, his crucifixion. And he's accepted by the people who sing praises to him, Hosanna to the Lord in the highest. And then he's rejected over the next three or four days by the, uh, by the religious establishment and the leadership of Israel. That ended that first 69 set of sevens. And then you have the last set of sevens or last seven, uh, period of sevens, which is the seven years of the tribulation. But when that 69th weekends, we're told that the, print, that the people of the prince who is to come, now the prince who is to come is a reference to the Antichrist, but the people of the prince who is to come destroy the temple. So who are the people who destroyed the temple? Well, that's the Roman army. Now there are those who try to come along and say, well, the uh, 10th Legion was made up of a lot of Easterners, Uh, A lot of people from the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Remember, the Roman Empire wasn't just European. The Roman Empire included North Africa. It included the Levant, which is the area around Israel, modern Lebanon, uh, Syria, Turkey. All of that area was part of of, uh, the Roman Empire as well. And, of course, those people today are, are Muslim. But the people of the prince who is to come, the Romans are the one. It doesn't matter what the ethnic makeup of the army was. It was the Roman Empire that destroyed uh, the temple in A.D. 70. And it is, and that fits within the framework of the uh, Noahic uh, prophecy of, uh, of Genesis chapter 9. And so this is why there's this movement towards uh, Western Europe. It's not because... Uh, we're a bunch of uh, racist, uh, ethnocentric, Eurocentric snobs who look down on the rest of the world. That's just uh, that, that's just the response of the, the pagan liberal world who's rejected Christianity and any truth that goes uh, along with Christianity. And they're, because they've got a habit pattern of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, their thinking just is completely. Uh, completely muddled, and they can't. When they you say white, they see black, and when they see uh, when they say white, you know we see black. It's just they they can't see truth for what it is. So there's this expansion that occurs, moving from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and then uh, to the ends of the earth, and that is understood in context at that time to be the Roman Empire, the known world. But of course, the implication is it's going to go throughout. Uh, the world itself. So we see the expansion 
in the section uh, we've begun in chapters 8 through 12 where God allows persecution to develop after the, the stoning of Stephen that occurred in chapter 7, and this persecution drives the Christians out of Jerusalem. They have to have civility. They have to have peace. They have to be able to live their life without uh, fear of being rounded up and thrown into prison. So they scatter out, and they go into other parts of Judea and Samaria. Uh, they didn't just go there. This is so typical. People don't follow the mandates to witness that easily. Sometimes God has to physically put you places uh, so that you will fulfill the mandate that you've been given to witness. And so uh, they scatter out. We see two individuals, or a second individual. We saw Stephen, who was one of the seven, as the emphasis in chapter 7. And now we see Philip emphasized in uh, chapter 8. The interesting thing that we should note here, going back to what happened in Acts 6, and this is fundamental, is that that we have this tendency because of the way the choice of the seven has been presented in a lot of churches that this, this is the choice of the original deacons because the verb for deacon uh, service, they were ser- serving the widows, um, was uh, was used in that chapter. Now, they're a prototype of what later develops, but they're not deacons. They are, they are extensions of the apostles. They are their assistants. So they're not, they're not even like uh, Timothy and Titus are later on as protégés of the apostle Paul. They have a much closer, tighter connection uh, to the apostles. So they are seen as being extensions of uh, the apostolic mission and apostolic authority at this point. But even that only goes to a certain degree, as I'll point out, as we get into this particular uh, particular section. So we're looking at the, the uh, impact of the gospel in Samaria, which is the area north of Judea. I pointed out last time how the Samaritan people were really sort of a uh, Heinz 57 uh, mongrel variety that had developed after the uh, Assyrian Empire conquered the uh, northern kingdom of Israel. In 722 B.C., it was the typical uh, procedure of the Assyrians to take native populations that they had conquered and to split them up so they couldn't come together in a conspiracy and revolt later on and to resettle them around the empire in various places and then to take peoples from other areas and bring them into the recently conquered areas and to uh, plant them there so that it would just break everybody up and they couldn't unify in opposition against the empire. As a result, the uh, peoples who, the ethnicity of the people living in Samaria are no longer uh, Jewish, no longer descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're a mix, an ethnic blend. Uh, They are an early form of multiculturalism, you might say and uh, maybe even a prototype of the modern so-called Palestinian people. If you look at the history of the people who are now called Palestinian, there never was a nation uh, called Palestine. Uh, The word Palestine uh, is usually what you read is that it has its derivation uh, etymologically from Philistines, but it's uh, also a case has been made that it's based on the a Greek word for wrestler, palaio. And part of that is based on the fact that if 
the word uh, Philistine, when, when Philistine came over uh, into Greek, uh, the Pelesit, and that came over into Greek as uh, for Palestine, you retained um, uh, that, that hard P for Pelesit. But yet, when you get into when you get into the uh, Philistine people and the Palestinians, there's some uh, consonant shifts that take place, and it wouldn't be um, the most consistent. So there's an argument that the Greeks, who loved puns, uh, chose the word uh, Palestina because this was based on the idea of wrestler. Jacob was the one who wrestled with uh, with God in Genesis 39, and so this is a reference back to. Uh, sort of a pun on that, and it sounded like uh, like Philistines. So they, uh, this was why it got got selected by the Greeks. When uh, we're told in Acts eight that uh, Philip went north to a city in Samaria, it's not identified. Uh, the main city historically was Samaria, which had been renamed by uh, Herod as Sebaste. That's the circle in the upper left. But the main, the largest city, the city that had a Jewish population, Sebasta at this point had primarily a Gentile Roman population. Uh, Sikar was the city that uh, was primarily uh, had a Samaritan uh, blend population, not a Gentile population, uh, even though on some maps like this one I'm using here uh, sees Sebasta as the main city. That wouldn't have, I don't think that would have fit, as I pointed out, uh, last time because that was a Gentile city and the Gentile inclusion into the church doesn't happen until Acts 10 with Cornelius and a lot is made of that and uh, that doesn't happen here in Acts 8 in relationship to the Samaritans. They're not viewed as Gentiles but they're not really Jews either. They were viewed as sort of a uh, halfway so we go get look at the last part of this section we looked at last time. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, to a city of Samaria, and preached or uh, uh, proclaimed, and there we have the word, the verb keruso, proclaimed Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken uh, by Philip, uh, hearing uh, because they heard and saw the miracles that he did. Now, this is the first time you have a non-apostle performing miracles. And miracles or signs and wonders, according to 2 Corinthians 12, are clearly the signs of an apostle. This is, uh, so why, is, why do we have Philip and Stephen also is said to have performed uh, signs and wonders? Uh, they're apostolic uh, extensions. They are extensions of that apostolic authority. They're the only other uh, individuals in the book of Acts that perform miracles. That's important because in the Pentecostal movement, in the tradition of the uh, what came to be known the, as later as the third wave of the Holy Spirit, there was the first the Pentecostal movement, then it kind of morphed uh, that they, the, the Pentecostal movement was indicated by separatism. They they got the Holy Spirit and they left their denominations. Then in 1957, uh, they uh, with the uh, <coughs> uh, supposed uh, baptism by the Spirit of a of a uh, Episcopal uh, rector in uh, California, 
they um, they stayed within their denominations. They didn't leave, so that became known as the charismatic movement. That's basically the difference between charismatics and Pentecostals. And then in the 70s, you had a new group that developed that even got tried to get rid of some of the uh, some of the uh, doctrinal distinctives related to Pentecostals and Charismatics, and this was caused the, called the third wave of the Holy Spirit or the Signs and Wonders movement or power evangelism, power, <clears throat> power encounters, all of this started by John Wimber in Southern California. Now, that's important because when we get more into this section uh, and we see this emphasis on Signs and Wonders, we need to understand that this isn't normative. I mean, this is related to establishing the credentials of the apostles and their immediate representatives, and it's not something that's happening with very many people. It's the apostles, and it's Stephen, and it's Philip, and that's it. It's not something that occurred with with every believer. Uh, So this was not something that was to be normative, and this is where the charismatic Pentecostal movement misses the boat because they don't understand the transitional nature of the book of Acts, and so they think that anything that happens in Acts is to be normative for the church age, and it's not. It's a transition period, and so there are certain things happening that are unique and distinct uh, to this period of time. One of the things that happens here is what is described in uh, verses 7 and uh, later on in, down into uh, <clears throat> the next section, into verse uh, uh, 13, uh, talking about Simon, who uh, has also uh, believes and is baptized and is amazed because he sees the miracles and the signs that were uh, performed, and then that causes him to want to pay off the apostles for that power. That becomes known as simony, which we'll get into before the the night's over with. So, verse seven. I want to just camp out here because this is such an important doctrine related to demon possession and demon influence. And there's so much confusion over this because there is a complete failure on the part of not only certain uh, experience-based theologies like the charismatic Pentecostal movement, but also many good uh, Dallas Seminary graduates, many good uh, Bible church pastors who ought to know better get sucked into this. And so it's it's a warning. Uh, I'm not criticizing them as much as I'm warning all of us to realize that, that there are experiential deceptions that Satan puts out in the world, and and it looks on the surface to us as if it's got to be demon possession. What else could it be? I mean, we're just so convinced by our experience that that's what this must be that we immediately block out the fact that there could be other explanations, and rather than uh, relying on our experience to define these things, we need to rely upon the Word of God to define these things. And when we get away from the Word of God and start letting experience define things, then we've started down an extremely slippery slope. So in verse 7 we read, For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So we have really three groups of people here, those who are demon-possessed, those who are paralyzed, and those who are lame. Now, there are those who want to say that the 
uh, paralysis and the uh, fact that they were uh, lame is related to the demon possession. And that may or may not be true, but it is not inherent in the meaning of this verse. It's clearly speaking of three separate groups of people, those who are demon-possessed and those who are paralyzed and those who are lame. Those who are demon-possessed have the demons cast out. They come out of the person. Notice that terminology there. We'll get into it a little more in a minute. And then those who are paralyzed and lame are healed. Now, the word there for healed is a word that we should all be familiar with. In Greek, it's the word sozo, which is the same word we have for salvation because the, the Greek verb sozo can mean to be healed, to be delivered, to be rescued from some sort of problem. And uh, ultimately, the biggest problem we face is the problem of sin and spiritual death and to be rescued from the problem of sin and spiritual death uh, is is uh, being rescued from sin and spiritual death is spoken of by this verb. But it can also mean something much less than salvation. It can mean simply being healed uh, of, uh, of a disease or it can refer to someone who is uh, cured of, of, uh, of um, uh, paralysis or something something like that. And as we'll see in other passages, it's even used to describe those who have been... Um, uh, delivered from demon possession. Uh, so, But it doesn't necessarily mean salvation. It can simply mean being healed. So this is just a general statement, and there's about five or six general statements like this in the Gospels related to Jesus' ministry where it simply says that many who were lame or blind or crippled or demon-possessed were brought to him and they were healed. So just a generic term, and you really can't, uh, use it, use these kinds of statements uh, for any sort of specificity. So let's look at there are three terms that need to be identified in this verse because they're very important. And if we don't understand them, then we will commit uh, exegetical errors, and um, and some of them are of the most basic kind. And it's really sad to watch men who ought to know better make these sorts of errors because it makes you wonder if they ever should have been in the ministry to begin with. And I'm talking about some extremely uh, well-known seminary professors and educators because they do well to a point and then they throw out the Bible in favor of experience. So the first word is unclean spirits. This is, uh, in the Greek, it's pneumata from the uh, basic Greek word pneuma, which is the word for spirit. It can refer to the Holy Spirit. It can refer to the human spirit. It can refer to an attitude, the wind, way of thinking. And it also refers to immaterial uh, beings that we call demons. And uh, because contact with them would render a person ceremonially unclean, they are called unclean spirits. Um, There are other terms for them, as we'll see in a minute. These unclean spirits uh, came out of them. Now, this is an extremely important word, as we'll see. In fact, if we don't take this as a technical term to define this whole situation of demon possession, if we throw this word out as a technical word, then we we don't have any, any understanding of what demon possession is or what demon influence is. And sadly, there are some people who've made this mistake. 
And, and this is, everything hangs on this word and one other word. Two, actually, two other words. One is a form of this word. And if you throw this out, you might as well just take everything that we, we, we can say about demons, demon possession, uh, indwelling of Satan, anything like that, and just, and just dump it. And we're all in just a morass of ignorance. This is so important. This is critical. They came out. That means it has to be where? In. That's right. It can either be out or in. And that tells us what demon possession is because when we get to the next phrase, and this, by the way, is the Greek word is up on the screen. It's ex erkomai. Now, that ex at the beginning is from the Greek preposition ek, which means to go out of or to, to leave. It's where we get our word exit, okay? And erkomai is just the basic root word meaning to come, to go, uh, but ex erkomai would mean to come out of something or to go out of something. And then we have this other phrase that says that they came out of, meaning that had to previously been inside of them, many who were possessed. And this isn't, doesn't say possessed in the Greek. And what you'll hear when you listen to people who try to make a non-biblical case of this is they'll say, see, this is, that's all we have is these ambiguous phrases to describe demon possession. What it really says literally is they had a demon or they had demons. And now, I can have a dog, right? But that doesn't mean the dog's inside of me. You know, I can have a brother, but that doesn't mean my brother's inside of me. I can have a friend, but that doesn't mean the friend's inside of me. Having a demon uh, can be a mascot, can be, uh, you know, any number of things, but that is an ambiguous term. It's not a very technical term. It's a very generic term. So what does it mean to have a demon? Well, the way language works is that you have ambiguous or generic phrases that are clarified by other terms in context. Now, what would be the term in the context here that would tell us what having a demon meant? It's the verb, coming out of. That's why it's so important. So I want to look at the doctrine of demon possession, and the debate is over whether or not the Bible really teaches demon possession. And part of the problem here is that even the English word possess is ambiguous. What does it mean to possess something? If you look possess up in the dictionary, for example, in the Oxford English Dictionary, it basically says that it indicates ownership. And so you'll read some books on demon possession or dealing with uh, uh, what the Bible teaches about demons, and they'll say, well, a demon possession means ownership, and since a person is not owned by Satan, even an unbeliever is not owned by Satan, it, it, this really isn't a good word. Uh, possession, and possession may not be a good word, but there is a meaning for possession that does fit. To be possessed by something did at one point have that idea of being controlled or indwelt by a demon. So in the OED, it lists several meanings. Uh, uh, ownership, having an ability or quality, like he possesses great talent. He possesses a beautiful voice. He possesses great uh, intellect. See, it's it just indicating some sort of ability, quality, or characteristic of someone. 
or it can mean to have power over someone, as in the idea of demon possession, that something has control or power over someone. And then um, also as the idea of dominating the mind of someone. That gets very close to the biblical idea of demon possession. So, yes, that fits within the semantic range of the word possess. But, of course, the OED is British English, so let's look at what how the Americans have uh, messed things up. And in uh, Webster's, uh, I think it's Webster's 11th, says that it's influenced, that possessed means to be influenced or controlled by something. Well, influence is different from being controlled by something. There's two different ideas, so that's trying to make it very, very broad. Um, and then it says uh, in Webster's, uh, as, as in an evil spirit, a passion or an idea. Well, if I'm controlled by an idea or a passion, that's very different from being controlled by a demon. So this is why the English word is ambiguous and why you find shifty um, uh, theologians and pastors who try to drive a truck through the ambiguity of the English word, and, and, and they do that. So we have to be careful because the English word is imprecise, but there are imprecise Greek words as well, having a demon and even the word demon, demon uh, uh, diamonizomai, which is the... The main word. So let's look at a couple other words for a couple other terms. The words for demon, you have the basic word, which is uh, daimonion, which refers to a demon uh, and is, refers to a fallen angel. This is a class of angelic beings that followed Lucifer in his rebellion against God. The fall of Lucifer is found in the Old Testament in two passages, Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, and Ezekiel 28, 12 through about 18 and 19. The problem is that today, due to the influence of scholarship, you have a lot of Old Testament scholars who have gone to European universities or American universities influenced by European universities, and they have come under the influence of a form of teaching that says that neither of these passages is talking about Lucifer. In fact, Lucifer itself is sort of a coined word. Um, <clears throat> literally in the, in the Hebrew, it means uh, the, the morning star, the sun of the dawn. Uh, Halel bin Shahar. You don't really have a term Lucifer there, except Lucifer is from the Latin meaning the light bearer. And so that's where we get the proper name of, of Lucifer that's used there in the King James Version for uh, in I, Isaiah chapter 14. But they come along and they say, see, what's going on in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 is that that Isaiah and, Jeremiah and uh, Ezekiel are just borrowing from Canaanite myths. And they're not talking about some uh, primordial, primordial fall of the angels. And if you look at almost any study Bible, an IV study Bible, the uh, uh, what is it, the Thomas Nelson study Bible, if you look at uh, just about any study Bible except for the LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible, or the Ryrie Study Bible, or Schofield Study Bible, that those the editors take this. Uh, non-satanic interpretation of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. A number of years ago, I read an excellent dissertation. I've even been challenged on this. 
I know the difference between a shoddy dissertation and an excellent dissertation. And when you read somebody who has written an excellent dissertation and they're going back and forth between Aramaic and Akkadian and Ugaritic and Hebrew, and they are educated individuals. And when you read the list of four readers on the uh, front of the dissertation, and three of them are considered within the top probably 5 or 10% of Old Testament scholars among evangelicals today, you know that this isn't just somebody's opinion. See, a lot of people think that that's what a thesis or a dissertation is, or even a paper that you write in seminaries, you're just expressing your opinion. No, you're, you're writing a research paper where you're marshalling as much evidence and data as you can to demonstrate the truth of your conclusion. And, and this is an excellent dissertation written at a Seventh-day Adventist school where the head of the Old Testament department is probably one of the top three names in Old Testament scholarship in this country, Gerhard Hassel. And this guy, whose name was, I believe it was Jose Bertolucci, wrote a slam-dunk, definitive, knockout punch of this whole mythology garbage. And his basic argument, going through about 300 pages of data, uh, going through all of the various myths among the uh, uh, Canaanites and among the uh, Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Greeks and going through all of this, he says, if this comes from a myth, what myth? We can't find one. You can't just assert that this must have come from a Canaanite myth unless you can point to some Canaanite myth that bears some resemblance to this. Otherwise, all you're doing is a, asserting a position. You're not proving anything. And asserting something is not what a scholar does. And yet, if you assert things, this is the old big lie, public lie technique. If you assert something long enough and loud enough, eventually people are going to assume that because you have a Ph.D. that you know what you're talking about. And other Ph.D.s quote you and cite you as an authority, and yet... Uh, ultimately, there's there's no certainty there. So Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, clearly are talking about uh, a primordial being who was at the highest level of God's creation and who entered into sin. And there's nothing in the description of this individual, neither Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28, that fits a human being. So this is Lucifer. Beelzebub, the head of the angels, the highest of the angels, Ezekiel says he is the anointed, that's the word Mashiach, same word used for Jesus, for Christos, the appointed uh, cherub, the highest of all the angels, who covered the throne of God. He is the closest of the angels to God. But because he has a priestly role indicated by his clothing and some other things, um, that he becomes envious of all of the worship given to God. See, if he's covering the throne of God, all the worship's covering to God, and he's witnessed all of it, and he wants some of it for himself. So he begins to lust after that approbation and power that belongs only to God, and the five I wills of Satan are listed in Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, culminating in the fact that he wants to be the most high God. So this is, this is Lucifer. Well, he enticed a third of the angels to follow him in his rebellion, and these are the demons, the fallen angels, the 
unclean spirits or the evil spirits. So they're called demons. They're called tanuma uh, tapaneron, uh, which is uh, the spirits of evil or evil spirits, um, also called unclean spirits in the, the Scripture. These are the basic terms that are used for the demons. Then you have the whole vocabulary for demon possession. Now, the two key words that describe demon possession are, as I've said, somewhat ambiguous. The first is the freight ekon daimonion, which is the uh, verb echo, which means to have or to hold something, and then daimonia, which, of course, is demon. It simply means to have a demon. This is seen in the story of the... Let's turn. go ahead and turn there in Luke, to Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8, which is the story of the Gadarene uh, demoniac uh, that has a demon cast out of him by Jesus, and that begins in Luke 8, uh, 8.26. In parallel to that, in Luke 8.36, in referring back to the individual who had a demon, uh, Luke writes, they also who had seen it, that is the deliverance, told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed. And then we have the word diamondizomai. Now, diamondizomai is a participle. We don't have an example of the uh, of the root ver- finite verb. It's a participle, and it's a passive. So passive means that it's receiving the action, and a participle uh, indicates some sort of ongoing action. So it's to be acted upon by a demon and there are some like Fred Dickinson, who used to be the head of the theology department, I, I believe, at Moody Bible Institute. He was a Dallas Seminary graduate. His textbook on angels electing evil was the standard textbook on almost every Bible college and seminary in the 60s and 70s. And he came out with a book in the uh, late 70s called uh, uh, Dealing with Demon Possession, where he argued because he had file drawers and file drawers and file drawers of case studies of p- Christians who had been demon-possessed, that Christians could be demon-possessed. And he said, see, demon possession is not a word we, we should use because it's meaningless. The Bible just says they're people who are demonized. They can be demonized as influence or they can be demonized in what we call possession, but the Bible doesn't make this kind of distinction between these two words. They should have taken his do- doctorate and his master's degree away from him. That is just basic Greek... 101, that you look at the, if you have ambiguous words like this, you look in the text to see if there are words that are more specific. So if diamondizomai is not precise and to have a demon is not precise, then uh, we need to look at some of the uh, circum- the verbs that are used in terms of the uh, uh, of the circumstances. So let me get to the next slide here. Here we go. In each of these cases, you have three different verbs that are used. Cast out, uh, go out, or to go in. Now, words like this, cast out, come out, go in, are words that talk about in and out. That a person who has a demon a person who is demonized is a person that has a demon come out of them and go into something else. Or they are a person who has had a demon go into them. 
That's what it's meant by possession. That's very different from influence, which is the uh, the the influence uh, through thought and through ideas from an external position. Whereas demon possession is when a demon or more than one takes up residence inside of a person's body and controls them because that person has allowed that to take place. Now, that doesn't mean that that person's volition and that their personality is completely obliterated because that person is still there. They're still somewhat conscious. They can still exercise a a positive volition toward God, and the only way they can be delivered from this demonic possession or control is through faith in Jesus Christ. So the words that are used here are ace erkamai, which, and in fact, in this passage, it not only uses the verb ace erkamai, but then it says, uh, repeats the preposition ace for double emphasis, it entered into him. Okay, the verb itself would mean entered into, but it adds the preposition just so we get the point. And uh, this is used in 8.30 and 8.32 and 8.33, three times. Uh, the other verb that's used in this section is the verb ex erkamai. If erkamai means to come or go, ace erkamai means to come or go into, ex erkamai means to come out of. And then when Jesus uh, causes, calls a demon to leave, we have the verb ek balo. Balo means to throw, like that's where we get our English word ball. Balo, you throw a ball. Well, ek balo means to cast out of. And once again, the same uh, uh, prepositional prefix, ek, used in the uh, episode described in Mark 1, verses 34 and 35. So all this tells us that the key word is not to have a demon or be acted upon by a demon. The key word that helps us understand the dynamic here is the verb, to go into, to come out of. Let's just look at the passage a minute. Verse 26 tells us, Then they, that is the disciples, sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. Okay, here we have a map. Here is the... uh, uh, Sea of Galilee here. Here is uh, Tiberias here. For those of you who have been to Israel before, you recognize the location of Tiberias. And Gergesa is across the Sea of uh, Galilee over on the opposite side, which is what we refer to usually today as the Golan Heights. And so it's in that area that this takes place. It was a Gentile area. Uh, when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons. There's our fr- phrase, echo daimonion, he had, had demons uh, for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. It must have gotten cold in the winter. Uh, when he saw Jesus, he cried out. Now, you see, he doesn't come to Jesus. Don't make the mistake that some people do that he's coming to Jesus to be delivered. He is not. Jesus is coming to him to cast the demon out. This guy's not looking for it. He's still hanging out with the dead people in the graveyard. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, Now this is the demon speaking. What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? See, the demon knows exactly who this is. He says, I beg you, do not torment me. The idea here is don't send me to torments. See, eventually this is where some demons are bound right now, and he doesn't want to go there. 
or days, we'll see this is legion. And um, for, it says in verse 29, For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Notice the verb there, come out of the man. For it, that is the demon, had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains, shackles, broke the bonds, and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. So you see the demon gives him supernatural strength. He's able to break his chains. He's able to overpower his guards. And uh, it, it has had various other uh, manifestations. So Jesus then asked him, what's your name? Now, Jesus, this, you, you'll hear charismatics say, see, you have to know the name of the demon. No, you don't. Jesus is not asking, this, this is not the magical incantation idea where you have to know the name of the demon to have power over it. And Jesus is uh, inquiring to know who this is because Jesus knows who all the demons are. So he's basically saying, okay, who are you? Uh, what's your name? He said, Legion, because many demons had what? Entered into him. Once again, we have this precise terminology. And verse 31, they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Again, this is where demons are held under uh, lock and key until they're released during tribulation. Um, and then we read in verse 32, Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain, so they begged him that he would permit them to what? Enter them. Enter, leave, go out of, back and forth. It's very clear what's going on here. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled, told them the city, etc. Okay, I don't want to get into all the other details of what's going on here. The point is, what we see here is that biblical usage of phrases going into and coming out of and casting out of define what it means to have a demon or be demon-possessed. It's not just some generic thing of having some sort of uh, situation where you're acted upon by a demon. It's a very precise kind of situation where the demon has taken up a, a, a place of dwelling inside of a person. Now, this can't happen to believers. Why can't it happen? Because what happens at salvation is that we are physically set apart to God and our bodies become a temple for the indwelling of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is not... There's a simple form of this argument. I go into more detail in, in the book on uh, uh, <clears throat> what the Bible teaches about spiritual warfare, which incidentally will be back in print sometime this year. We've got somebody who's, uh, who's printing it. Um, if you want to read something... Uh, I also wrote uh, this book for a pastor theme, uh, Satan and Demonism, and uh, all of that mat same material is in there. And then just, I think, this, uh, oh, no, in the spring of 2009, um, in the Chafer Theological Seminary Journal, Volume 14, Number 1, uh, I have an article called Demon Possession and the Christian which incidentally was originally accepted to be published in the Dallas Seminary Journal, which is probably the most prestigious uh, uh, journal uh, among evangelical scholarship. But then uh, that was the old guard that accepted it. But when some of the people who were on sabbatical, who were part of the new guard, got back, they said, well, it's a little too argumentative. And, and then I also know that, that in the missions department, 
at 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 Dallas, there's uh, the head of the missions department thinks Christians can be demon possessed, and so there, I'm surmising that there was some sort of battle. Nobody cares what the Bible says anymore. See, this is what has happened historically. Is uh, for example, back in the uh, great heyday of Dallas Seminary in the 40s and 50s, one of the greatest Old Testament professors they had was Merrill Unger. Merrill Unger wrote his doctoral dissertation. And it was later published as Biblical Demonology, in which he showed that Christians could not be demon-possessed. But when all of these missionaries out there on the edge of the mission field read that, and they had had all these experiences with people who had made some sort of profession of faith, uh, and they, then they still manifested what they thought, based on their great experience, of course, was demon possession, then... Uh, these missionaries would write, write these stories and tell all these little anecdotes to uh, <clears throat> Dr. Unger and say, see, these people were Christians. We know it. And they're demon-possessed, and we know that too. Well, I would question whether they, how can any one of us know that another person is A, truly saved, or B, actually demon-possessed, not just psychotic, or not being influenced by a demon from an external vantage point. How can we know? We can't pierce the veil of invisibility. We can't know. And so are you going to take the Word of God for for your foundation, or are you going to take experience? Are you going to judge experience by the Word of God or judge the Word of God by your experience? See, the problem is we live in a world today where we want to evaluate and interpret the Word of God on the basis of our frame of reference. How infinitesimally small is any of our frame of references? It's ridiculous. We, do, we don't know enough to put a drop in the vast oceans of this world uh, by comparison, and yet we think that on the basis of our great experience, that one little drop, you know, we can discern whether or not a person is truly demon-possessed or not. This is insanity. It's hubris. It is arrogance to the nth degree. And it's putting experience over clear, sound exegesis. And they can't come up with, and, and Dickinson tried in his dissertation or dissertation-like book to do so and completely failed because of his mishandling of uh, Greek et- etymology. And so what we see happening is the emphasis on these signs. Now, there's one other little footnote that I want to mention because every now and then I do get somebody who asks me if I think that, um, that uh, <coughs> Judas Iscariot was... Uh, saved. And no, Judas Iscariot was not saved for the same reasons that I've articulated here. Because in John chapter 13, which describes the whole upper room situation, uh, first of all, Jesus comes in, he sits down with his disciples, and in verse 2, towards the conclusion of the uh, uh, Passover meal, We read in verse 2, And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. Now, the devil's not in the heart of Judas Iscariot. The devil's putting something into the heart of Judas Iscariot. That's demon influence. And the devil puts all kinds of things into your heart and my heart through the world system, enticing our sin nature, all kinds of things. But that's not demon possession. That's not the internal control or residence of a demon inside the body. That is what? It is influence. It's, it's influencing us through ideas. So verse 2 is nothing more than uh, uh, than demon influence. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, uh, Simon's son, to betray him. But then if we go down a, a, a few verses, down to uh, verse 
verse, uh, verse 10, uh, Jesus says to Peter in the discourse about whether or not he ought to wash Peter's feet, Jesus said, he who is bathed, that is, he who is washed all over, a picture of being positionally cleansed or saved, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. Com- being completely clean equals being saved. Okay? And you are clean. He addresses the disciples. You all are clean, uh, but not all of you. There's one that wasn't clean. There's one there he's saying is not saved. Why? Verse 11, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, and we get it repeated again, you all are not, you are not all clean. So when he'd washed their feet, taken their garments, he goes on to explain, and then he gets down to uh, the episode with, uh, uh, with Judas And we get down to read um, verse 21. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples look at each other because they can't pick out Judas as an unbeliever if their life depended on it. And um, verse 23, Now there was one leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. This would be John. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him. That is, he's across the table. John, ask him. That's what he's doing. He's going, ask him who it is. Okay, and so Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke, and then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, that is, John says, Lord, who is it? Jesus said, it's the one whom I shall give a piece of bread when I've dipped. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. So he's giving it to Judas Iscariot to show, to indicate he's the one who's going to betray him. And then we read, now after the, verse 27, now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. What's that word? In the Greek, it's ace erkomai. Now, if ace erkomai here doesn't mean Satan possessed him and entered into him, then we can't make the word mean that anywhere else. So if this doesn't mean Judas is, is possessed by Satan, then what it means is we have no doctrine of demon possession anywhere in Scripture, and only a fool or somebody demented would teach that. You know what I'm talking about. I get this all the time. This is insanity. It is exegetical stupidity to say that Judas was not a believer. I mean, was a believer. And and throw out your terminology like this. So, Judas is clearly an unbeliever. Satan enters into him, and then he betrays Christ. Okay, now... Demon influence is what we have described in James 3, 14, and 15. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against truth. This wisdom does not descend from above because it is what? Earthly. See, that's what I was talking about Sunday morning, Colossians. It's of the earth. It's not of heaven. It's of the earth. It's a synonym for being worldly. It's earthly. It's sensual. That's a lousy translation because this is the word asukikos. It's soulish. It's of the unbeliever. Uh, and it's what? It's demonic. So worldly thinking, the thinking of unbelievers is demonic. That means every unbeliever is thinking like a demon. And trust me, most Christians are too because they're, they're operating on human viewpoint. Human viewpoint is worldliness. Worldliness is demonic influence. It's satanic thought. It's based on the arrogance of the soul. So let me ask you a question. What is more evil? What is more evil, a legalistic Pharisee or a Hindu? 
They're just different forms of cosmic thinking, right? A Hindu is a pantheist. Now, the, the Pharisee may be a monotheist, but he's still trying to get to heaven by works. He's still His whole system of thought is just as screwed up and out of whack and unbiblical as the Hindu. So what's the difference between a presidential candidate who follows liberation theology, which is pure Marxism, and is operating on pure carnality, and a presidential candidate who's a Mormon, and a presidential candidate who's into replacement theology and would hang Israel out to dry in an instant. They're all cosmic thinkers. None of them are operating biblically. I'm getting so tired of hearing people try to make an issue out of, and I'm not telling you who to vote for, I'm just telling you what not to make an issue out of. Don't make an issue out of the fact that Romney's a Mormon. It's irrelevant. He's a cosmic thinker. Nixon was a cosmic thinker. Reagan was a cosmic thinker. Bush was a cosmic thinker. Clinton, of course, was a cosmic thinker. With a capital K. Okay? Eisenhower was a cosmic thinker. They all are. None of these guys are operating from a solid biblical viewpoint. They may, they're, they're like every, you know, if, they're, if they were Christian, then they might have a point of truth here and there. You know, Nixon, despite all of his flaws, Nixon had a mother that told him that you're going to be in a position where you can save the Jews. She understood the role of the Jews in history. And when the Yom Kippur War broke out, and against the advice of Kissinger and against the advice of the State Department because they're focused on the Russians coming across uh, Western Europe and invading there, he recalled what his mother had taught him, and he decides to pour everything we've got, pull it all off the line in Europe, send it all to Israel, and the Israelis were within 48 hours of losing it all and being wiped out. And if it weren't for Nixon pulling their fat out of the fire, uh, we wouldn't have a, a Arab-Israeli conflict today. That was because of Nixon. He did a right thing, and he was as cosmically screwed up as anybody. But my question is, if some of our presidential candidates who don't want us to be involved in any foreign wars whatsoever, and they make that a fundamental principle, if they had been in the presidency in 1973, they would have let Israel been run over by the Arabs. And what kind of divine discipline would we be under then? That's why this is important. You know, some aspects of cosmic thinking are worse in terms of consequences than others. And, and the role of Israel in history in blessing Israel is important. So we have to be careful not to get sucked into the foolishness of earthly, soulish, unbelieving thought that is just as demonic in a lot of ways. It just, you know, demonic thinking version one versus demonic thinking version two versus demonic thinking version three. Okay, don't think that one's better than the other inherently because it's not. So the other thing that happened, we'll come back, I'll have to finish this next time because I was talking about Samaria, signs and spirits. Now the signs are important. The casting out of demon is part of the signs and that, this is why Jesus did it, John 7, 31. The, the, uh, the crowds recognized that when the Messiah comes, would he do more signs than this, that is Jesus? This is why John writes in John 20, uh, 30, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, these what? These signs 
are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Mashiach, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Peter reiterated this on Act, in Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. What's the purpose of the signs and miracles? To attest, to give validation to the message of someone. So this is what happened. Simon believes. Simon the sorcerer believes. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, these signs, 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, these signs are the signs of an apostle. Philip, Stephen are the only non-apostles, but they're tightly connected as apostolic representatives. So next time we'll come back because we have to look at the whole issue of salvation because there are a lot of people who say, well, you know, he believed because of signs. So that's not a real solid basis for faith. And look at what happens later. He turns around, he tries to buy the Holy Spirit. That's where we get the word simony to purchase a church office. And um, so he couldn't have been saved. This guy was a sorcerer. He was just faking it. Is that right? Or is Simon going to be in heaven? Well, I think he's going to be in heaven because he believed, just like everybody else in the book of Acts. So we'll look at that next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that you are more powerful than any situation, any problem, any demon, any circumstance that we possibly face. And no matter what the circumstances may be, we can trust in you and you will strengthen us and you will give us the ability to do do the right thing and to trust you and to grow spiritually because nothing is more powerful than you. Scripture says if you're on our side, then nothing can defeat us, you plus us is a majority. So, Father, we pray that you would encourage us by what we've seen here in terms of your power and your control over history. You allow evil to exist for a purpose so that you may be glorified. Father, we pray that you would encourage us with what we've studied. In Christ's name, amen.